0: In the case 23-2832, Legacy Cares.
1: This is on the Legacy Cares case. We'll start with the courtroom first. Good afternoon, Your Honor, Hank Taylor
2: and Bob McClurgan on behalf of the Debt Legacy Cares. Thank you.
3: Good afternoon, Your Honor, Bradley Pack representing Wholesale Floors, LLC, Elite Sports Builder, LLC, RH Dupper Landscaping, Inc., and JFK Electrical Contracting Enterprises. And also with me today at council table is Cynthia Nesselrode from my office, who can helping, be helping with exhibits. Great, thank you.
0: Good afternoon, Your Honor. Jennifer G. I'm on behalf of the U.S. Trustee, and we also have Larry Watson of our office, who's appearing by Zoom. And in the courtroom, we have the assistant U.S. Trustee, Elizabeth M. Okay, thank,
1: thank you. you.
4: Good afternoon, Judge. Peter Riggs from Spencer Fain on behalf of UMB Bank. Uh, also in the courtroom is my, is my partner, Jessica Gale, also a <laughs> Spencer Fain, and Charlie Merkel of the Greenberg Troward Law Firm, also appearing for UMB.
0: Thank you. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Zach
5: Farley of Spencer Fane for UMB as well.
6: Good afternoon, Your Honor, Jordan Krupp, of Chelsea Stang, and Jones on behalf of the Official Committee of Unsecured Credit.
5: Thank you. Good afternoon, Lamar Hawkins, Counsel for Image, Pace,
1: and Spray Foam.
5: Good afternoon, Your Honor, Phil Giles, on behalf of Kearney Electric.
1: Thank
5: you. Your Honor, James Ugaldi, for Eastern Funding and Macro Lease Corporation. Thank you. Good afternoon, Your Honor, Robert Warnicke, for Hayden Companies, LLC.
1: Thank
5: you. Your Honor, James Reed, Udall, Shumway, for RKS Plumbing and Mechanical. Thank you. Good afternoon, Your Honor, Patrick Dirksen, for Jayco Design and Installations, LLC. Good afternoon your honor chad Snyder for oakland construction thank
2: you. <coughs> good afternoon your honor alan maida with birch and cracchiolo on behalf of pacific proving llc
5: uh, good afternoon your honor ben reeves on behalf of ian k of phoenix inc <coughs>
2: thank
5: you good afternoon your honor warren up appearing on behalf of salt river community gaming enterprise it's
1: thank you other than the the uh, appearance of Mr. Watson on screen. Uh, is there anybody else online that would like to make an appearance? I see the name Lucas Hammond. Maybe not. Anybody else like to make an appearance? Patrick uh, Mohan. Anybody else at all that would like to make an appearance that is not in the courtroom?
2: Yes, Your Honor. Howard Steinberg of Greenberg-Trowick. Appearing on behalf of UMB Bank. Thank you. What else? Good afternoon, Your Honor. This is Brad Cosman on behalf of Insight Investments.
1: I think I heard Brad Cosman, but you were breaking up on me. Is that right, Mr. Cosman? Yes, thank you. That's me. Okay, thank you. Anybody else wanting to appear? Mr. Taylor, we'll start with you, please.
2: Thank you, Your Honor. I think when we were last before you, uh, you had asked for an evidentiary hearing to address some discrete issues in connection with the veteran possession financing motion. Uh, we're prepared to put that evidence on. Uh, I have two witnesses, Mr. Keith Berman and Mr. Doug Moss, um, that we're prepared to uh, offer testimony from. Um, there have been some, as you probably have seen in the record, the U.S. Trustee filed a supplemental objection uh, I believe we have, at least for the purposes of this motion, addressed the U.S. <laughs> trustee's concerns. Uh, among other things, we filed uh, a, a revised budget that removed some items that are no longer necessary, some positions that are now vacant and are not going to be filled. Uh, we've also, in that budget, provided some greater disclosure concerning the expenses, uh, issues that concerns that the U.S. Trustee have raised. Um, and we filed that. Uh, we filed that revised budget with the court this morning. Um, the other concerns of the U.S. trustee, as I said, I think we have um, addressed or are addressing. Uh, I'll let Ms. Ciampi speak for her herself, obviously, but I, I believe that they are going to uh, not object to approval on a final basis of the dip motion, uh, at least. But of course, it's uh, we understand we have an ongoing process and ongoing investigations, and we're happy to assist them in that in that process. Um, as for the other uh, objecting parties, I think there were a number of, um, there were a couple of, of equipment lessors, uh, Inside Investments, Mr. Kosman's Client, uh, and National Sports Opportunity Pro- proper So P is what I call them. Um, they, we've worked out some language that we've included in the order to make it clear that we're going to be paying them as part of the budget, uh, and, and that's going to satisfy their objections. Um, and that language has been incorporated into a draft uh, final order, and as well with that order, there is a amendment to the credit agreement that will also, uh, we're proposing to be executed. Uh, those that that order and that credit agreement have been circulated by email to the objecting parties. Um, have not heard back from many people on it. They may not have had an opportunity to fully digest it, uh, but it has been circulated. Um, the The amendment to the credit agreement deals largely with concerns that the uh, Unsecured Creditors Committee raised with us on an informal basis. Um, we believe we've addressed those concerns. Uh, I think that. The uh, the Unsecured Creditors Committee is is probably in a position today, we believe, to support approval of the dip financing motion. Again, I'll let Mr. Krupp speak to that himself. Um, the other uh, objections that we received back last month, uh, at the time prior to our last hearing before the court, uh, dealt with some what I will call just concerns from mechanics lien holders dealing with, you know, they didn't want to have a facto stay of, of litigation against the um, against the fee, we've taken the view that that's no longer issue because we've removed that to this court. So there's not a stay issue at this point. Um, and uh, but at any rate, I, I believe that the concerns that were raised by those uh, mechanics and holders, the ones other than Mr. Pack's clients, um, have been resolved or, or, or are resolved in what we're proposing in the form of a. Uh, a final order and the amendment to the dip credit agreement. Um, so, you know, today I think at this point the, the main objection is coming from Mr. Pack for Wholesale Floors and his clients. Um, we're prepared to present evidence to the court uh, on the couple of issues that you cited at the last hearing, which was uh, the reasonableness uh, of the of the dip loan, as well as the need and benefit to the estate of borrowing uh, post petition. We have also prepared to present evidence to the court concerning value as best as we can uh, of this of this of these assets, um, and we would do that through Mr. Moss. And then we are also prepared to present evidence concerning the issue of whether there was any work done on this property prior to the bank recording its deed of trust. Um, and again, that evidence would be through Mr. Moss. So, what we are proposing to do is we have filed uh, in the record uh, on the first day declarations from, from Mr. Moss and Mr. Berman. Um, we would offer those in as their main part of their direct testimony. Uh, I want you to hear from Mr. Berman in particular as to the uh, terms of the DIP loan as well as the, um, the, the need to keep the park open because I don't think that is probably adequately explained in his declaration, but he's prepared to do that today. Um, and uh, we're also offering Mr. Moss's declaration for the purpose of specifically of establishing the facts and the documents that support the borrowing by the debtor under the first tranche of, of bond proceeds back in 2020, $250 million tranche that was secured, is secured by the deed of trust that was recorded on August 20th, 2020. Um, so, uh, we're, we're offering it that for that purpose, as well as the documents that relate to that, which are Exhibits 1 through 10 of his declaration, Your Honor. Uh, again, I don't think there's really any dispute on those points as far as the borrowing, the fact that the debt was incurred when the deed of trust was recorded. I think those are all undisputed points, but we just want them in the record nonetheless. Um, so that's what I would per- suggest we do, is if you, if the court would would prefer, we're, we're prepared to put uh, Mr. Behrman on the stand and and testify to those matters.
1: So when I look at 364D, there's really two things we're primarily talking about today, both of which are the the burden of the debtor possession. Number one is that uh, the, the debtor was unable to obtain uh, credit otherwise. And then secondly, that there's added protection here. Uh, and I've heard you recount who's going to testify as to what. Um, and it seems like you've got those bases covered. And of course, evidence is what I need. So. Uh, my inclination would be to just go ahead and get started here, unless uh, perhaps Mr. Pack would like to make an opening statement like you just did.
3: I don't have any opening statement, Your Honor. I think we addressed the, the legal arguments uh, pretty extensively at the last hearing. Um, there are a couple maybe housekeeping matters concerning exhibits. One, uh, Mr. Taylor and I had both agreed to the admissibility of uh, our respective sets of exhibits, so that would be debtors exhibits one through three and wholesale floors exhibits four through seven. Um, So at this time, I just ask uh, Mr. Taylor can can confirm, uh, but I'd ask that they be admitted into evidence. That
2: that, confirm that, Your Honor. Okay, great.
4: Your Honor, if I may, Peter Riggs for UMB Bank. We have not seen Mr. Pack's exhibits. I don't know what uh, his foundation or evidence or basis are for them. He did not circulate them in advance, and so we object to uh, documents we haven't seen.
1: Okay, I guess we'll talk about those when we get to them.
3: Okay, uh, then I guess we'll get to it when we get to the exhibits. Uh, the other housekeeping matter that I had was with respect to the debtor's production in camera of documents that we have not seen uh, that reportedly bear on the value of the property. Um, I, my understanding of the court's ruling at the May 31st hearing was that you would direct the debtor to produce them to your chambers in camera you weren't making a ruling on the admissibility of those exhibits. Uh, so I don't know if this is the right time for it or not, and you can certainly uh, tell me to sit down if, if it isn't the right time, um, but we would object to the court's consideration of any of those exhibits uh, that have not been produced to us and they're not, uh, that are, we assume hearsay and that are not available uh, for us to examine or to cross-examine
1: in connection with a DIP financing motion. I intend to resolve the motion today on the evidence, and uh, I didn't hear Mr. Taylor say that he intends to admit those as evidence, Uh, and while I've seen them, they're not evidence. Okay. Uh, Then I'll let Mr. Taylor call his first witness. Let's let's first hear from the UST and the committee. I'd like to hear what they think, and are they going to participate in the evidentiary side of this hearing.
0: Thank you, Judge. Um, So, at the outset, just so that there's no confusion, Regarding the status of the u.s. Trustees objections to the dip financing motion. I just want to clarify that We have not fully resolved all of those objections. Um, Mr. Taylor and I have discussed by phone and email um, That for purposes of today's hearing the, U- the u.s. Trustee will not stand in the way of allowing the dip financing To continue so that the park remains open and operating pending a sale um, and some of the specific ISSUES RAISED BY THE U.S. TRUSTEE AND HER SUPPLEMENTAL OBJECTION HAVE BEEN ADDRESSED. Um, AS MR. TAYLOR POINTED OUT, THERE WAS A a REVISED BUDGET WAS FILED TODAY THAT DID APPEAR TO REFLECT CHANGES TO THE ORIGINAL BUDGET. Um, AND THE DEBTOR HAS FILED A DETAILED ITEMIZATION OF THE EXPENSES SET FORTH IN THE SUMMARY OF THE DIP BUDGET. AND THAT'S DEFINITELY HELPFUL. Um, WE DIDN'T RECEIVE THAT UNTIL YESTERDAY, SO WE STILL NEED ADEQUATE TIME TO SCRUTINIZE The the budget to um, make sure that all of our concerns that we outlined in our supplemental objection are addressed Um, Also,
1: tell me what you envision though. It sounds like on the one hand you're okay with the final order uh, approving the dip financing to be entered by the court, but What's to happen with your to come items?
0: um, Well, basically what I'm saying judge is that the budget we're not the US trustee is not agreeing to and signing off and approving that the budgeted items are all reasonable and necessary and appropriate and that we won't later object to the payment of any of those expenses um all we're saying and i believe mr taylor we we both agreed that that was that this was an appropriate position to take that for today we're fine with the loan going forward but he understands or debtor understands that we are continuing to investigate and're like I said we're going to look into the revised budget um, they've been very helpful in providing us information and uh, communicating with us but we do reserve the res- right to investigate and if necessary at a later point uh, object to payments that <clears throat> the. US trustee determines to be duplicative unreasonable unnecessary or uh, not a benefit to the estate
1: so if this final order calls for approval of an attached budget, you want to reserve the right to uh, challenge that budget somewhere down the road?
0: Challenge the payments made under that budget, yes, Your Honor,
1: exactly. Retroactively or in advance?
0: Um, well, I, what I would say is that we would want, definitely, obviously, in advance to be able to object. And as far as retroactive, if there was any expenditures made that were not made that were not reasonable or necessary. And not a benefit to the estate, then I think that that would be open to objection by the U.S. trustee or anybody, and in, that's interested in this case.
1: So, if the attached is approved, but proves later to be unreasonable, and you can persuade the court of that, you a want the opportunity to do so, and b uh, reserve the flexibility for that order to be revised. Exactly.
0: Precisely. Um,
1: what other items are still yet unresolved with U.S.T.
0: Um, okay, so. And I do want to point out that our reservation of rights also uh, regarding the budgeted items includes a reservation pertaining to the management fee that's being paid to elite. Again, we discussed this with Mr. Taylor, and we are planning to continue working with Mr. Taylor and Mr. Bierman of mCA to get clarity regarding the propriety of that fee, but that is something that again, we are still uh, revealing.
1: I mean that's part of the same thing you just mentioned, which exactly. is the budget issues yeah.
0: I just wanted to be clear that did include the elite management fee. Um, so, the one issue is regarding the retention of elite sports that we raised in our supplemental objection is that, and the U.S. Trustee still has concerns about the fact that elite, as of today, does not appear to be authorized to conduct business in Arizona. I understand from Mr. Taylor, and he sent us the documents showing that within the last week, elite. Had filed an application, an application to conduct business in Arizona um, as a foreign entity under a fictitious name, Elite Sports Group AZ LLC. Um, the last that I looked, that appears to be pending with the Arizona Corporation Commission. Um, and w- really, what we're concerned about is that this change in the, the name of how elites doing business in Arizona. Um, and the failure to get that appropriate authorization until post-petition, we want to make sure that that's not going to cause any problems, for example, with insurance issues. So I think we need to make sure either today by confirmation with the debtor or as soon as possible after today's hearing that there are that there's no um, possibility of insurance coverage being jeopardized as a result of these lapses. Um, Uh, we had another objection based on the preservation of third party claims, but that has been resolved. Mr. Taylor has confirmed that all the estate claims, including claims against insiders, including Mr. Moss and Mr. Larry White, will be preserved. Um, we are going, we, I'm going to ask that we have an opportunity to review any proposed order granting the DIP financing um, before it's lodged with the court. I know that an order was circulated um, and I believe sent to the court earlier about two hours ago. And you
1: haven't seen that yet. I
0: just saw it. Uh, So I haven't even had a chance to look at it. And I spoke with um, counsel for UMB and we agreed that, uh, he agreed, and I I believe all the parties agree that the U.S. Trustee should have an opportunity to review the language of that proposed order before it's uploaded. Another objection that actually was not addressed in the supplemental objection but was in the omnibus objection was to the request that UMB be given a super priority lien. Um, that is still an outstanding objection. We don't believe that that should be granted and that uh, the only lien that UMB should have is a replacement lien. I believe this is an argument made by multiple other creditors. Um, and then Just a couple of matters pertaining to disclosure, Your Honor. Um, The credit agreement requires certain reporting obligations by the debtor. Um, Specifically, the debtor is to provide UMB with biweekly and monthly financial reporting and to submit a borrowing certificate in advance of each borrowing date. And and in light of the history of uh, this case and in the history of the, uh, the, the park itself, Um, I ask and I haven't approached Mr. Taylor with this yet, and I'm not sure if he's open to it, but I'm going to just put it on the record We were going to ask that that um, Those items be filed with the court Um, If there, I don't see why that would be a problem These are disclosures that need to be made anyway to the bank and we would just (coughs) ask that they, they be filed under notice of filing uh, Bi weekly or monthly financial reporting or notice of filing borrowing certificate so that all creditors, all interested parties have transparency as to um, how the money is being spent here.
1: And the debtors resisting that so far?
0: I have, that's what I said. I haven't um, had an opportunity yet to discuss that with Mr. Taylor, but it was an issue that I thought, you know, going over the credit agreement, that I, I don't see why it would be a problem, but it is something I'm going to propose, and maybe Mr. Taylor will get up after me and say, we have no problem doing that. It's just a matter of filing it with the court. Um, but we would ask that that be done.
1: Let's just touch that one, Mr. Taylor. Any problem with that?
2: I don't. I guess this is also in addition to our monthly operating reports that we already have to file?
0: I mean, I suppose that if it's the monthly financial reporting, that could be attached to the monthly operating report. But as far as the biweekly um, reports, yeah, that those could be filed. And, and the obviously
1: reports attached to the monthly operating report.
0: Yes. I mean, that would be fine if they wanted to do it like in other
1: that. words, they don't have to do it every time they have a
2: borrowing request. Yes, that's yeah, I, I should be clear here. I was just wondering if we're talking about do I have to make three or four filings every month or can I just do this in the form of a monthly operating
1: I'm report? i trying to ascertain. It okay. seems like I'm hearing one filing. It's the monthly operating report and attached to it will be these borrowing requests.
0: Yes, that, that would be acceptable to the US Trustee.
2: That's fine with us, Your Honor.
0: Okay, and so I'm, and I, just for clarification, that will include copies of any borrowing certificates that were submitted in that monthly time period. Um, okay, and then just one final point I just want to make sure that it's clear that as we understand it, um, the budget, the, the DIP budget is not addressing. How proceeds under any potential future sale are going to be um, dispersed. Just want to make sure that that's understood.
1: Okay. Everybody <laughs> else from USRC that would like to speak, Ms. Amorosi. No, you're. Okay. Mr. Watson, did you want to say something? Mr. Watson, can you hear us? And is there something you wanted to add here? Sorry, Judge, I was trying to find my right uh, my button here. Uh, I do not have anything to add, Your Honor. Thank you. Okay, very good. Thank All you. Right. All right, let's hear from Mr. Krupp then. Thank
0: you, Judge.
6: Good afternoon again, Your Honor. Um, Jordan Krupp representing the committee. Um, Mr. Taylor did accurately reflect uh, where the committee is holding at this point. Um, over the last few days, uh, really into last week, Uh, I engaged in what I would characterize as really constructive conversations with councils for both the debtor and for UNB about the committee's uh, well several concerns that the committee had about the uh, the relief being sought today Um, those conversations continued uh, and resulted uh, This morning in a resolution of all of the committee's concerns with respect to uh, the issues that we raised last week Um, those are accurately reflected in the form of order and amendment to the credit agreement that I have seen and did have an opportunity to review. Um, So uh, at this point, the committee uh, stands in support of the approval of the final debt and possession financing uh, order today. Um, I, I don't want to gratuitously add to my comments, but I will say that I'm because the committee is in the position of of supporting approval of dip financing today on a final basis, I'm uh, puzzled by Ms. Giamo's comments and the U.S. Trustee's position. It sounds – well, I I can't really tell, frankly, whether the United States Trustee's Office is objecting or not to the entry of a final order today. Um,
1: The big takeaway I got from Ms. Giamo was not on a super-priority basis.
6: Okay, well, and that was the other thing that I – I'm used to the term priming, so I think that what she's referring to is a super – when she calls it a super-priority lien, she's talking about a priming lien, not a super-priority administrative expense, correct? I, I took
1: it to be the lien issue as Yes, well. the lien issue. Ms. Okay, Jammel, so it's we... a
6: 364-D lien that is the subject of the U.S. trustees' opposition, yes?
1: Ms. Jamo, you are talking about the lien itself, not about the administrative priority.
0: I'm talking about the administrative priority, the super-priority lien that they have, that is – that is being – uh, worded as such in the but Mr. Krueger is
1: distinguishing between an administrative claim on a super priority basis and a lien position and a super priority basis.
0: I all right. I'm talking about the administrative claim portion of that.
1: But not the lien itself.
0: Um, we would ask that the lien be only a replacement, and that that's that's what, what we had put forth in our original objection. That replacement
1: the, to the use to the extent of the use of the cash collateral. Yes, but not to the extent of additional lending. Exactly.
0: Yes. Yes. And this was in our um, objection, our original objection. And if I have if after Mr. Krupp speaks, I'm more than happy to address any other concerns he has besides that.
1: Okay, that's that's a big one right there, though, Mr. Krupp.
6: Okay, thank you. I I, I did appreciate the the opportunity to clarify that issue. So, in any event, I I will limit my comments to the committee's position rather than respond to anything that uh, the U.S. trustee has has raised. I'm just trying to sort of set my own expectations for today's proceedings. I want to assure the court that it is uh, not my intention to participate in the examination of witnesses so we can get done here sometime before uh, midnight, and uh, so I, I will reserve my we we'll reserve the right to question witnesses if we feel the need to, but at this point, um, I, I don't anticipate it at all.
1: Okay, thank you. Thank you. Understanding that Mr. Croup wants me to pick up the pace here, is there any uh, <laughs> <laughs> is there any materialman that would like to speak before we hear from uh, uh, the bank? I might take it that the materialman a, don't want to participate uh, in the evidentiary side of this hearing, uh, or b are simply satisfied with uh, the form of order
5: that Mr. Taylor has circulated. Bill Giles again, Your Honor, for Kearney Electric. Um, I did have a chance to review the form of order and I discussed this with Mr. Taylor ahead of today's hearing. Uh, I just wanna point out, there d- it does require a correction as far as the challenge period and when it begins. Uh, it, it references the interim orders, but the interim orders is defined as both the first and second interim orders So we just need some clarity in the language in this final order as to the date The 75 day challenge period actually begins um, and the only other objection we have Is to the credit amendment which mr. Taylor and I had a chance to discuss at the last hearing using an amendment to resolve Kearney Electric's subjection within the amendment and it's on page Apologize it's on page 2 Page 2 of the amendment it's it's uh, Paragraph 4. It's the changes to 8.1 L of the credit agreement. There's a parenthetical that reads But not foreclose on their liens upon any material assets of debtor or the fee interest of the landlord again My client maintains it has a mechanics lien against the uh, the actual land owned by the landlord Which is not property of the state and so we just object to the addition of that clause Outside of that, we're okay with the form of order and this amendment to the credit agreement.
1: Thank you. I think at last report, Mr. Hawkins and Mr. Warnicki uh, had a problem with where we're at, but uh, are you okay where we're at now?
3: I could have yelled this across the room. I would have. What,
1: what
5: Mr. Giles just said, that's what we agree with, um, although we are very much in support of what Mr. Pack is raising as well.
1: Uh, my client also believes it has an interest in the land, so we agree with Mr. Giles. And I was planning on staying out of Mr. Pack's way. So, okay. Come join me. Let, me. let me turn to the bank then. Mr. Riggs, is there something you'd like to offer before we get to the evidence?
4: Um, we we join in uh, uh, the debtor's comments and encourage the court to uh, grant the motion today. Um, Addressing some of the issues that were just raised before the court um, first with regard to the comments from uh, Carney electric uh, I, My understanding of that objection Judge, is that they, they Believe that uh, the bank should not be able to declare an event of default under the credit agreement if uh, any of the material men um, are successful in foreclosing against the fee, the property owners fee interest uh, in state court, and I, I think they're concerned about their um, uh, their third-party rights being compromised. And uh, our intention and in our reading of the document is that the um, the provision uh, is intended to um, uh, provide the conditions un- under which UMB um, is is entitled to uh, pump the brakes and, and not advance further money. Um, it is not intended to limit third-party rights with regard to their claims against the um, So I would respectfully suggest that the court overrule that objection. Um, as it relates to the, uh, the U.S. Trustee's comments about uh, – I, I share Mr. Krupp's confusion. I, I, I do believe we're talking about a priming lien um, as, the, as, the, uh, as the main concern there. Um, the, the, the terms of the, of the dip credit agreement are sort of well-established well at this point, and everybody's had plenty of time to review them. They're, they're not um, – I have no authority to amend those terms, and so the, um, the decision I think before the court is whether to close the park or not, and the, um, I think the court will hear testimony today that um, priming liens under these circumstances um, are commercially reasonable and quite common. Uh, and I would encourage the court to overrule that objection as well.
7: Thank
1: you. Maybe you can spend a few minutes, Mr. Riggs, in the back of the courtroom talking to Mr. Hawkins and Mr. Warnicky and Mr. Giles about specifically that provision, because it sounds as if maybe it's not as bad as they think it is, uh, based on what you just said. Okay. All right. Can I, I address I, that one point, Your Honor?
3: I. I think Mr. Giles' comments a different way as they're not relating to um, any impairment of the mechanics lien holders' third-party rights against specific proving the owner of the fee. I know Mr. Giles said he wanted to know when the, the challenge period under uh, the, the DIP order would begin because one of the provisions of their order is if anybody's going to challenge the priority of UMB's liens, they have to do it within a 75-day period. And I don't know if Mr. Giles was, uh, I don't remember whether he was at the May 31st hearing, um, but I do recall from that hearing that Mr. Riggs said, that's not going to apply to any of the mechanics lien holders who are parties to the state court litigation, which as the court knows has been removed here because effectively they've, they've already asserted that challenge uh, to that priority. So um, unless Mr. Riggs wants to tell me I'm wrong, right? I misread him, um, perhaps
1: that might resolve the concern. But Mr. Riggs, given that that state court lawsuit has been removed here, um, do we really even need to know when the starting gun goes off because it's already happening?
4: I guess we do need clarity on the starting gun for a couple of reasons. First, I think that the um, parties parties that, are, uh, that have an interest in this case, such as the committee and perhaps others, uh, that are not parties to that litigation. Um, may wish to assert a, a challenge of one form or the other. So, sure, but we're talking about the people who have already made the challenge. As, as it relates to them, uh, Judge, if, if they're going to make a challenge that is not that goes beyond what is contained in their state court claims, they need to do that within the challenge period. If they're, if, if the challenge that they intend to assert is coextensive with uh, what is at issue already in, in, in the state court case that has been removed, Well, then we think that a separate challenge action is just redundant. Okay. Then,
1: Mr. Taylor, it's probably not unreasonable to specifically identify a date by which that challenge period begins, because there are some people that haven't made the challenge yet.
2: Uh, We agree with that, Your Honor. I think there is some ambiguity because there were two interim orders entered on two different dates. So
1: So what date are you proposing? When I sign the final order, if I finally sign it?
2: That's... Fine with me, but it's really the bank's issue more than mine, Your Honor. Uh,
4: I'm sorry,
1: what was the question? The question is uh, if we're going to specify a start date, when is that start date?
4: When I sign a final order approving the DIP financing? I think that the, uh, if I recall correctly, the language of the interim order reads that it would start as of the date of the first interim order. But.
5: That's correct. And that that would be
4: and
6: the date that we would propose. It, it, it continues on with what we've had
4: previously. In other words, the clock is ticking
6: already. That's correct, Your
4: Honor. And one other one other point of clarity that I just wanted to make very briefly is, to the extent that that we have heard, you know, sort of rumblings that the the material men intend to um, seek remand of the of the um, lien priority litigation. Uh, to the extent that that occurs, and there isn't a separate challenge action brought in the bankruptcy court. Um, they need to assert uh, whatever challenges they have in the bankruptcy court um, uh, to the extent that that case is remanded. I think that's uh, only fair as far as our own due process rights here in this court. I okay, understand what you're saying.
1: All right, Mr. Pack, was there something else you wanted to say before we get started here? No. All right, Mr. Taylor, let's call your first witness, please.
2: Karen, I'd call Keith Berman to the stand, please. Berman, if you come forward and be sworn
1: in, please.
0: Please raise your right hand. Do you solemnly swear that the testimony you're about to give in this proceeding is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, to help you, God? Yes. Thank you.
2: can you please state your name for the record
8: yes keith bierman
2: please um, tell the court how you are currently employed
8: i'm a senior managing director at mca financial group limited here in phoenix we're a corporate turnaround and restructuring firm
2: how long have you been with mca financial Mr. Henry?
8: 23 years
2: and in your work with mca financial can you describe to the court what your work is it? has been at MCA
8: Financial? Sure. Um, Your Honor, I've uh, run all manner of uh, corporate restructuring and turnaround projects, Uh, been a quarter appointed receiver over 150 times in various states, uh, various courts, Uh, been financial advisor uh, in a number of bankruptcy cases over those years. Uh, I also act as an expert witness on issues of interest rates, uh, plan feasibility, Eleven Eleven B election, um, all manner of sort of bankruptcy type issues for financial advisors.
2: Let me uh, ask you specifically: Do you have any experience in uh, negotiating or obtaining loans for distressed companies? I do. Yes. Can you please uh, explain for the court what your experience is in that regard?
8: Yes. Uh, over the last twenty-three years, um, I've been involved with many dozens of. Uh, Refinancing projects both out of court and in court Uh, Oftentimes I'll get referred into a a borrower by a lender in a distressed situation under a forbearance agreement Work with that borrower borrower with the end goal of getting a refinancing done to take the bank out if that's what the bank desires Uh, I also when I'm retained directly by um, by by debtors uh, Both in and out of bankruptcy court. I, I work You know if there's a situation with the bank where they're in default or they need a new a new lending institution work with those Uh, those those borrowers uh, very closely to go out in the market find loans that are going to suit their needs and going to accomplish the objective uh, in many cases which is taking out the existing bank or providing supplemental financing for the debtors operations I've also in in bankruptcy court been involved with a number of uh, of dip financings uh, both obtaining dip financing managing dip financing when it's received Um, Negotiating terms of DIP financing and uh, sort of assessing what the market is for DIP loans, negotiating the best deals
2: on behalf of my clients. Aaron, just to put a little finer point on it, about approximately how many times have you uh, been involved in negotiating or obtaining loans for distressed companies outside of court or outside of bankruptcy? Uh,
8: Over 23 years, uh, more than 75, I would say.
2: Okay. How about how many times have you been involved with? Obtaining or negotiating the terms of a dip loan in bankruptcy—at
8: least a dozen, if not more.
2: In your experience, Mr. Berman, uh, what do uh, what are the cr- critical factors that lenders look to in underwriting a dip loan?
8: Sure. Um, so there's a number, and obviously it's very situationally dependent, uh, depending on the on the on the borrower and and the and the situation that we're trying to to obtain financing for. But um, there's things such as collateral, right? What is the collateral? Is there unencumbered collateral? Um, is there collateral that has a value in excess of the existing liens on the property? That's certainly a really critical critical factor. Are there owned assets that the debtor has um, that are uh, that can be encumbered or can be pledged? Um, Who is the owner? Uh, In this case, we have a nonprofit, so there technically isn't an owner, per se. It's just a board of directors who are volunteers. Is there an owner who has credit capacity, who who can guarantee loans, who has a financial history that uh, a a dip lender can rely on uh, from an underwriting perspective? Um, Also, the the performance of the borrower. Um, Has the borrower historically made money or lost money? Are they currently making money or losing money? What is the need uh, for the borrower at the time? How much money do they need for how long of a period of time? Can they service that debt um, during, let's say, a bankruptcy proceeding, um, based on the plan to operate the business on a go-forward basis? Uh, do they own real estate? Is the real estate uh, owned and can it be pledged? Uh, can it be lien? Uh, can a, even a second be given on real estate? In this particular case, we don't have that circumstance because it's a, it's a ground lease. So those are just a number of factors that that lenders will look to. They'll need to, grab to some, gravitate towards some collateral to be able to make sure that at the end of the day, if they make that loan, they can get repaid, and they will get repaid in full, plus the interest that they contracted for in the agreement.
2: And uh, does litigation or the debtor's involvement in any litigation, is that a factor?
8: It is a factor. Um, obviously, if there's litigation, which typically means there's unsettled issues. Uh, in bankruptcy cases, often, oftentimes there's unsettled issues with respect to lien priorities. Um, that kind of uncertainty is something lenders do not like. Uh, they, they want to ensure, you know, they essentially underwrite the debtor's plan, right? They underwrite whatever that plan is to get to the, the end of the case in, in a dip loan. And if there's a litigation, if there's uncertainty, and the, the lender can't get comfortable which way that, that litigation is going to go, uh, and that litigation could potentially hurt their ability to get repaid, it's certainly going to be a negative factor that they're going to consider. They're not going to take the risk of lending into a situation where they don't feel they have some amount of control and some amount of, of insight and, uh, and a view into what will likely happen in the case.
2: When was MCA employed by Legacy Cures, Mr. Berman?
8: Uh, We were initially retained as a chief restructuring officer for for Legacy Cares, Inc. uh, in early January of 23
2: Please explain to the court what services you provided as what services MCA provided to the debtor uh, Prior to the bankruptcy.
8: sure Uh, so as the as the CRO um, We were responsible for interfacing directly with the board and the management of the debtor working with uh, The management company at the time working with all of their employees working with contractors vendors um, working with UMB uh, as the as the trustee for the bondholders, um, working basically working with all the parties to resolve a whole host of issues that this park has, um, strategic issues. What's the direction of the park? Uh, financial issues. How do we cut the burn as much as possible? How do we get new capital into the park to be able to operate it? How do we deal with these mechanics liens that are outstanding? Um, you know, we we negotiated contracts. We put together budgets. We put together projections. We tracked budget to actual. We reported a whole host of financial and non-financial information to a number of parties, including the trustee and its financial advisor. Worked very closely with them. Also worked with with legal counsel for the debtor on a number of issues that the debtor was facing, uh, primarily from a business perspective, but how do we restructure a contract to make it more advantageous for the debtor? How do we renegotiate terms of a particular deal so that it's more palatable to the debtor, debtor so the debtor has the opportunity to see its way through this process? Um, so it was, candidly, a full-time job. I mean, I had two or three people in my office basically working full-time on this project because it was so hands-on and there were so many issues that needed to be resolved.
2: Now, at the time you were employed in January, can um, you describe, generally speaking, Legacy Care's financial situation?
8: It wasn't good. It was terrible. Um, debtor was burning about a million dollars a month before debt service, uh, missed its debt service payment, had $300 million worth of bonds outstanding, had a whole bunch of mechanics liens outstanding, um, was essentially having to borrow money uh, from the trustee uh, and the bondholders ha- had to borrow new money in order to be able to sustain its operations and just pay its bills in the ordinary course. Um, and at the time uh, that I got involved, the, the debtor was uh, working with an investment bank uh, to try to raise additional capital, uh, either through some kind of quasi-equity infusion or issuance of new bonds uh, that would be either pair or junior to the, uh, the existing bonds. Um, that was a, an effort that started in, even before I got involved uh, in October, I believe uh, it was, but it had been ongoing for some time, and we were kind of right in the middle of that when I got involved in January of 23.
2: What was the, what was the name of the investment bank that had been engaged?
8: So it was Loop Capital, uh, I believe they're out of Chicago, but a, na- a national outfit who specializes in bond financings for this type of project.
2: Okay, and, and what, what was the debtor considering or trying to work with Loop Capital to obtain?
8: They were trying to, uh, quite simply, money. Uh, They were trying to obtain money uh, to put into the debtor through, you know, really whatever form. I mean, they they were kind of specialists in in bond financing, so they gravitated towards the bond markets. Uh, They are trying to get money to come in junior to the existing bondholders. Um, uh, I, I think I even saw estimates of up to $100 million of new money. Uh, to deal with both, you know, mechanics liens are outstanding, unpaid accounts payable and, you know, unsecured debts as well as provide working capital for the park because the park was continuing to lose money on a monthly basis, significant amounts of money, and and the park needed a runway to get to profitability to where it could, you know, hit its projections and then start to service the debt in a number of years. Um, and so that that process was in the middle they were you know, they had put together materials they had you know, talked to a number of different potential investors and uh, And were in the middle of that process when I got involved
2: Can you tell the court what how that process with loop capital ultimately played out
8: sure? Um, it's kind of seemed like an endless stream of conference calls uh, weekly conference calls or bi-weekly conference calls to talk about the status the, the, the reality of it is, though, that uh, Loop was not able to deliver any, any proposal that I ever saw, um, not even a draft of a proposal. But mm-hmm. uh, there, I, I'm not aware of any third party who committed in any respect to provide any new capital to the debtor under the circumstances um, that they were being asked to. Mm-hmm. And so um, in about, I would say, March uh, time frame, March of 23, um, I know we made a decision at the debtor, as well as the, the bondholders, made a decision that this was a fruitless effort. It was a waste continued. It was a waste of time to continue, despite Loop's best efforts and their canvassing in the markets. This wasn't going to happen, and so we, you know, Loop was told to stop the activity because they couldn't produce anything, and we need to look at other alternatives, namely, potentially filing for bankruptcy.
2: Okay, so that was about mid March, you say? Yes. Okay. Um, At that point in time, um, did the company make a decision to try and obtain a dip loan? It did. And and why did the company need a dip loan if it was going to file bankruptcy, Mr. Brennan?
8: Well, we're losing a million dollars a month. We knew that we would have to fund the administration of the bankruptcy, uh, professional fees. We knew we'd have to keep everyone current in the bankruptcy uh, and not become administratively insolvent. Um, Despite our efforts to reduce costs um, as much as possible, given where the revenue level of the park was, uh, the profitability just wasn't there. It needed more time to continue to build volume. And that was uh, years down the road, not months down the road. And it couldn't be turned around that fast, particularly going into the summer season, which is a little bit slower um, given the heat in Phoenix and um, and the the relative uh, lesser activity uh, here in in town. Um, And so we we knew we needed money or else this case would be doa we might as well you know hand the keys back over essentially to the to the bondholders or file for chapter seven
2: okay. uh, you, you you testified a little bit ago about the factors that that uh, dip lenders look at in underwriting a loan uh, given what your experience with legacy cares at the time how did those factors look for obtaining a dip loan uh prior to filing bankruptcy
8: uh, not very good <laughs> We had um, no collateral. There was $300 million of senior bonds. Um, they had a leasehold interest in the park. Um, there were no unencumbered assets. Essentially, all the assets are leased. So there was no even just you know golf carts and, and equipment. None of that was even around. Uh, not that it would provide us enough capital to operate, but there wasn't even that to work with. Uh, the, the land is leased, underground lease, with a third party. Um, So there's no real estate to attach to. The park had lost uh, in its, I think in calendar 22, lost $12 million before debt service. So just operating the park and trying to keep the lights on. Uh, Park continued to lose money in 23 every month despite efforts to reduce costs. Um, Still continues to lose money today. There's no owner for the park. It's a nonprofit. Uh, Therefore it has no owner who could provide outside collateral, um, real estate, or, or some other net worth outside of the park's assets. That's not available because it's a nonprofit. So there, there really was, there was nothing, really nothing that we could offer to a lender to get a new loan um, and, uh, because everything was encumbered. And, and, and we were losing money, there, was, there would be no, no, way, no way to repay the loan, even if one was made.
2: So at the time, did you think Legacy Cares could obtain a dip loan on an unsecured basis?
8: Uh, My professional opinion is there was no chance.
2: Uh, At the time, did you think Legacy Cares could obtain a dip loan secured on a lien on unpledged assets?
8: Uh, Well, there were no unpledged assets, (laughs) so no. Uh,
2: At the time, did you think Legacy Cares could obtain a dip loan secured by a junior lien on the park assets?
8: No. uh, In my opinion, uh, no lender uh, would put themselves behind $300 million of bond money plus uh, potential mechanics lien claims. Um, So now you're talking, you know, $330, $340 million. Um, This park was losing 12 million uh, a month, or sorry, 12 million a year, a million a month. There was just no way that a lender, you know, would take a junior position because there's just no, there's no way for them to get repaid, absent a sale for for a number that would, would be totally
2: unrealistic. So at the time, did you think it would be possible for the debtor to get a dip loan without offering a priming loan? Objection. Speculation. I think he's already qualified that he's an expert in what the um, factors are for underwriting for a dip loan, and he is capable of testifying as to what his thought was at the time. Well, he was was a question
1: of whether he sought uh, priming lending We'll, we'll get to the source.
2: We'll get to that, Your Honor. But... I'm asking him, if, it was po- if it, did he think it was possible to obtain a dip loan without offering a primary loan to the dip lender?
3: Right, and Your Honor, I don't think Mr. Beerman's been tendered as an expert witness. My understanding is that he's here as a fact witness based on uh, his work with the debtor. So he can't really be testifying to his opinion. He can testify to facts, but what Mr. Uh, Taylor is asking for is an opinion.
2: I'm not asking him to give an opinion as to what the market necessarily required. I'm asking him to state what his thought was at the time as an advisor to the debtor looking at financing in, in
1: the face of the bankruptcy. Objection sustained. Let's move on.
2: At some point, Mr. Bearman, did UMB Bank offer to make a, a loan? Yes. And what were uh, did that loan require the offering of a priming lien? Yes, it did. At the time, did you think it would be possible to get another lender to come in and offer without a priming loan? Objection. <laughs> S- same objections. Calls for speculation. It's the
1: same question, so objection sustained.
2: After the bankruptcy filing, Mr. Grimm, on uh, May first, um, did you have a chance uh, to talk with any other lenders about uh, the terms of making a dip loan? I did. Okay. Can you please tell the bank what you did?
8: Sure. Um, I contacted three, um, but I would consider alternative lenders, um, Guarantee Solutions, Serene, Investment Management, and uh, Monroe Capital. Um, I also contacted two commercial lenders, commercial banks, uh, National Bank of Arizona, and Arizona Bank and Trust, and essentially laid out the facts and circumstances of this case, both pre-petition and post-petition, and asked them if they would... Uh, be interested in offering a loan to the debtor and the answer was soundly no. No, thank you
2: uh, Did they in did they indicate to you anything about a priming lien?
8: They said if they were going to make a loan, um, it would have to include a priming lien. Absolutely
2: Let me turn your attention to the terms of the dip loan. Can you recount for the, the court the, the basic economic terms of the dip loan?
8: Sure, Um, it's up to $9 million in total borrowing capacity. Uh, I believe it's the term is through September. um, Although there are some some um, conditions in there, depending on what happens in the bankruptcy case. It's a 12% interest rate, uh, 2% fee, I believe, based on the borrowing commitment. There's some monthly reporting, uh, budget to actuals and those kinds of things, but those are the basic terms. Priming Lane, of course, being one of
2: them as well. I'd like to pull up Exhibit, Debtor's Exhibit 1 if we can do that. Herman, I do you have in front of you what's been marked as Debtor's Exhibit 1?
1: Hold on a minute. I'm not getting it on my screen here.
2: Is it showing on any of the other screens? Behrman, do you recognize what's been marked as Exhibit 1? I do. What is that?
8: Uh, I asked Miller Buckfire, who is the invest, investment bank who was retained by the debtor. Uh, this was pre-petition uh, in early April to provide me with a list of comparable transactions uh, based on their market knowledge and the database that that they had access to, uh, and asked them to uh, send me some sample uh, dip financings that had occurred uh, so that I could see what the terms were.
2: Okay. And, and what did this... Uh, what does this uh, term sheet indicate as far as the parameters for those dip loans, generally speaking?
8: Yeah, so there's um, essentially this this sheet. Uh, I guess the the search criteria, if you will, uh, are are Chapter Eleven cases between uh, October one of twenty two and April one of twenty three, um, where a final dip enter was was ordered, dip order was entered, excuse me, uh, and that the liabilities of the case are between 100 million one hundred million and five hundred million comparable with, with this particular case. And um, there's seven transactions, seven DIP uh, loan facilities that they provided to me that outline um, who, the, who the borrower was, the case, obviously, the, the court, um, when it was entered, how much the commitment was, and then the interest rate and other costs associated with each of these loans.
2: And yeah, looking at the loans that are summarized here, how would, you, how would you characterize the terms that were offered by UMD Bank on the DIP
8: In a general sense, I would say that the the loan offered by UMB is uh, more advantageous than these loans. Certainly competitive competitive at a minimum, but but, uh, actually better in terms of terms. uh, Cheaper, uh, fewer fees, uh, a little more flexibility as far as the debtor is concerned and the borrowing capacity of the debtor from a timeline perspective. Uh,
2: The DIP loan, for example, does it require an exit fee?
8: Uh, It does not require an exit fee, no
2: but these other loans do is
8: that? they do which are you know vary between uh, looks like one percent and three percent depending on the loan
2: yeah, as well what about the condition of guaranteed interest
8: yeah so that's another issue that the lenders that even I talked to said they they said you know if we were to make a loan which we're not interested but if we were we would require a minimum interest period so say interest for mm-hmm. six months Um, Because they don't want to take the risk of making a loan and earning two months worth of interest So there would be an upfront cost associated with that commitment that we do not have in the current dip facility with UMB
2: And in your experience do dip lenders often require debt service during the term of the bankruptcy case
8: They they often do it obviously depends on the case and the cash flows, but um, Most lenders want to see some debt service so that their exposure is reduced as the case goes on
2: And the dip loan being offered by UMB Bank, is it required debt service?
8: It does not, no.
2: All right, Mr. Berman, I want to shift your attention if I can to the issue of keeping the park open. We can talk about that. Um, Prior to filing bankruptcy, did Legacy Cares consider the option of closing the park down to save expenses? Yes, we did. Okay, what,
8: how did you assess that option? Mr. Berman? Yeah, so we um, this was in February of 23 we, we ran a number of analysis uh, including projections uh, essentially assuming that we would as I call it mothball the park. We'd shut the park down um, from essentially all activity and uh, put in place you know whatever costs were necessary to preserve the asset as, as best as we could. <laughs> This is a large park it's 320 acres has tons of facilities um, many of which are very expensive to maintain and if you don't maintain them the value goes down very very quickly so we ran an analysis essentially said what if we mothball it what's it going to cost us we prepared that analysis we uh, shared it with FTI the uh, financial advisor to UMB they tore through it in detail we had lots of calls about it lots of Discussion about it. They questioned all the assumptions. We responded um, We had a very productive discussion with them at the end of the day This was in February at the end of the day the analysis was and this was in the high season Okay, that it didn't make sense to to mothball the park that in fact It would cost more money to mothball the park on an out-of-pocket basis to preserve the assets than it would to operate the park and You know basically fund the losses from the operation
2: Can you explain to the court why it would cost more on an outlay basis to mothball the park rather than operate it?
8: Yes. You would essentially lose all of your revenue, right? These are tournaments, uh, adolescents participating in practices, leagues, special events, all those kinds of things. Um, If you mothball the park, you essentially terminate all those contracts. So you have... And, and those participants in those activities are responsible for paying for parking, paying for food and beverage, um, paying for additional ticketing for family members, buying t-shirts, uh, buying lunch, um, you know, and, and stuff for the kids while they're at the park. So you would essentially lose, there's no revenue generating activity that you could have at the park if you shut it down or even quasi shut it down. So you would lose all your revenue. Um, now you do obviously eliminate some costs associated with that, but, the the profit if you will on the activities before you get to the fixed cost infrastructure is still pretty significant from from the revenue generating activities but the real problem is you have such a heavy fixed cost infrastructure associated with this park you have rent you have landscaping you have um, security you have uh, uh, leases you have all manner of very expensive things that need to be continue to be paid even if you shut the park down In order to be able to maintain the park and you you have to build a certain volume with the activity of the park To break even and when you lose all your revenue that the bulk of those costs are Are gonna still remain and still you're still gonna have to pay them to preserve the value So you're paying them either way you might as well they might as well have the activity there Pull
2: up exhibit Bearman, do you have in front of you what's been marked as debtor's exhibit two? Yes. Can you take a look at that. Yes. I don't. I don't want you to go through the line item of this, Mr. Bierman. Uh, I, I think to just save time, can you explain to the court exactly how much money uh, the park is? I guess saving by borrowing and keeping open as opposed to being mothballed.
8: Yes, and and just to clarify, this analysis in this exhibit is uh, an analysis that I updated last week uh, in advance of this hearing using a lot of the same essentially assumptions and methodology as in February, but comparing this now to the dip budget, right, which is the relevant budget that we're comparing it to, to a mothball budget. And uh, essentially the summary of this analysis is it will still cost you or it will cost you $3.7 million more than the current DIP borrowing, the $9 million in DIP financing, to shut down this park. So essentially by keeping this park operating, you're saving $3.7 million of additional borrowings you would otherwise need to maintain the park, primarily because of the revenue loss and the loss of the contribution of that profit to the park's expenses.
1: This is pre-taken on the new financing, though.
8: No, that includes the new financing, Your Honor. So show me that in your model here. Sure. So, so really, the the financing, the nine million dollar dip financing, is essentially if you think of that number as that's the loss that has to be funded. Okay. So, um, on the left hand side of this of this exhibit is the dip budget. Okay. And you can see if you if you go down to the very bottom here. Um, Let's see the middle of the page, the net operating loss plus additional cash outflows. This does not include no, this does include professional fees. Uh, you see a loss of uh, 6.243 million dollars right. for June to October. Okay. Then on the right hand side is the mothball budget, and you'll see the losses now. This the number on the far right side where it says difference, favorable slash unfavorable that's the favorable or unfavorable variance. So when it's, when it shows as, or reflects as a negative $3.656 million, that's a loss in addition to the uh, $6.2 million loss that you would incur under the DIP facility as an operating park. So it's incremental loss. Because again, because of the loss of all of the revenue and because you are making money from a what I call a contribution margin when you take your revenues less your direct expenses, namely your coaches, your referees, you know, those kinds of expenses. We, even when you take those out, you're still, you know, you're still making, even when you pay those expenses as an operating park, you're still making that, that profit that then goes to pay rent and utilities and property taxes and all those kinds of things. You take that out and all of a sudden you're just paying all your expenses with no revenue, no offset. And that's why it's $3.7 million more.
2: Mr. Bierman, um in your experience in restructuring and bankruptcies, uh, is there value to selling and operating business and ongoing business?
8: Very much so, yes.
2: Uh, and, and in this case, do you think that the value of the park's assets, the debtor's assets, are maximized by keeping the park open versus mothballing it?
8: Very much. So it's an analysis. I've looked at several times. I've confirmed with uh, the financial advisors for the trustee uh, UMB about that issue as well, Um, and it's clear to me. I know it's clear to them based on my conversations that The the we're gonna get the most money for this park in a sale if it's operating if we maintain the personnel If we maintain the contracts if we maintain the condition of the park if we maintain the reputation of the park as best we can um, going dark essentially will set the value of this park back c- considerably, in my
1: opinion. It's
8: uh, It's very difficult to estimate, Your Honor, but I would, it's a lot of money. It's, I hate to venture a guess, but it's a lot of money. Much, certainly, much more than, in my opinion, much more than the cost of the debt financing.
2: Uh, let me put a little finer point of that. Can you explain to the court what are some of the things that, if you shut the park down? happen and and to 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 detract from value.
8: Sure um well I guess first off you have reputational damage right be in the paper uh park shuts down um you would have all of these events um whether it's practices leagues tournaments charity events um uh, all of those special events all of those would be cancelled right so you'd have people who put deposits down who aren't going to get their money back potentially Uh, You have a situation where once you cancel all those those contracts um, and they their trip, you know gets canceled um, Maybe they have you know the the family has airfare. They're planning on coming out for a tournament They have to eat that so there's a lot of reputational damage Um, The other thing that happens with a park like this is if you shut it down It's going to take a substantial amount of time from a revenue perspective to build it back You have to then you know once the park you know does reopen or is in a position to reopen You don't just start with the revenue that you You had when you shut the park down you got to build that all back and so now you've got to book contracts months out in advance you got to get the confidence of the sponsors and the confidence of the participants that yes if they commit to to put money down the park will operate it will be there for them to to play um you got to commit you know the sponsors will have confidence that they're going to get value for their sponsorship dollars which are significant the other thing that happens is there's several hundred employees of the management company that work at this park they they love the park. They're specialists in what they do. Uh, they'll be out of jobs, and they will have to go somewhere else. And if you were to have a buyer, for instance, come in and try to take this park over, they would have to try to rehire all those people who are fairly specialized in what they do. They're used to working with, with amateur athletes and putting on these tournaments and events. Um, it is a skill that they have, and it's an expertise that they have. You will have to try to reconstitute that workforce that that was there for at least a year operating and you probably won't get most of those people back is my guess. You'll get some, but, but you'll certainly lose a whole bunch. Um, you know, and so, and then of course you've got the burn, right? You've got the burn of, you know, you got to pay the $315,000 in rent every single month. You've got to pay the leases on the scoreboards. You, I mean, it's, there's still the expense of the park that you're just going to be writing checks for and not getting any return while it sits dark.
2: Thank you, Mr. Berman. I'm finished now. Thank
3: you, Mr. Pack. Good afternoon, Mr. Beerman. Mr. Pack. So, I I think I was a little bit confused about some of your testimony. Um, I, I thought I heard you say that the, the debtor, if it gets this uh, dip financing, is going to be making a profit. But that's not really true, is it? No. I,
8: I if if I said that, it's certainly not correct. But I don't. That's certainly not what I intended to say. No.
3: Okay, so in your exhibit two, um, what it's showing is that if you get this $9 million loan, the debtor's still going to spend $6.2 million more than um, what it would spend, uh, well, the debtor's debtor's still going to spend $6.2 million um, in expenses uh, more than the revenue that it's taking in, right?
8: If, if the debtor continues to operate as planned, yes, it will still lose $6.2 million during the pendency of this bankruptcy through September.
3: Okay. And in addition to that, in addition to losing that $6.2 million, the debtor is also going to be another $9 million in debt.
8: No, that's not how that works. The The, the $9 million funds the $6.2 million. So essentially the, the debt funds the operating losses.
3: You have... Uh, uh, loan repayments figured into this um, this exhibit that you've prepared
8: it is not in here No, though this does not contemplate a, a sale proceeds or or repayment to any creditors of any manner in this this is an op kind of an operating budget
3: okay so the debtor is still going to owe the bank the nine million dollars that it advanced right
8: that is correct yes
3: okay and in addition it's also going to all uh, owe all of the interest that's accrued up until the loan is repaid right yes and the 2% loan fee that that you mentioned?
8: If it's approved, yes.
3: Okay. Um, And these projections that you've prepared, they are just projections, right? (laughs) They're your um, estimate or opinion of the revenue that the debtor is going to get and the expenses that it's going to have to pay. It's not fact, right?
8: It is an estimate. It's based off of my you know, working with the debtor for six months pre-petition and my understanding of the business, my team's understanding of the business. And yes, you put together the best projections you can, not knowing what will happen, certainly. Okay,
3: yeah, and you had actually, I think you said you had updated this uh, projection last week. At the time the debtor filed its bankruptcy petition on May 2nd, you had also prepared uh, projections about uh, how the dip money uh how the dip loan funds would be used and uh what debtors revenues and expenses would be over the the repayment term right yes okay could i i just want to show you that because it it seemed to me that there was still a pretty significant difference between um your initial projections and the projections that uh, you presented in exhibit two if i could uh, ask miss to please pull up uh, uh Mr. Bierman's first day declaration. And go to page 16. These are the revenue projections that you prepared at the outset of the case, right?
8: Well, these aren't revenue projections. These are um, operating receipts and expenses for the projected pendency of the bankruptcy.
3: What's, what's the difference?
8: You said revenue projections. They're not just revenue projections. This is a full budget.
3: Re- revenue and expense projections. Correct. That's correct. Okay. And then if we go to uh, page 17, if I'm looking at the um, far right corner in that that uh, row that says net cash flow, it looks like you've projected that by the end of October of 23 that there's going to be um, a net loss of eight million dollars. Is that correct?
8: Uh, yes. Could you could you go back to exhibit two, real quick? The the mothball budget. I just want to look at one number because I think I can answer your question.
3: Okay. Exhibit. What is it that you wanted to see? Uh, sc- scroll down to.
8: Okay, I understand. I, I, I've seen what I need to see.
3: Okay. Uh, it doesn't change the fact that you initially projected that the debtor was going to lose $8 million, and now you're projecting it's only going to lose $6.2 million.
8: That's it, not correct. Th- this is the same exact budget as was in the dip. This is for the, what's in the mothball budget is from June to October, because it didn't make sense to have a hearing about what already happened in May. The budget, the first budget that was filed was from May to October. So you're missing an entire month of losses in the comparison. That's why the numbers are different.
3: Okay, well, let's look at the, the losses for May that you had projected. Let's go back to uh, Mr. Beerman's first day declaration. Okay. And let's go to 16 again. Okay, so on this, go, go back to, okay, this is May. So if you look at this projection, this shows uh, the losses that you are projecting for May, right?
8: This has this has a weekly budget of losses that constitutes May, yes.
3: Okay, and the, the first four weeks are the first four weeks of May, right?
8: It is. It's obviously, there's a few days. Um, and this is a little bit apples and apples and oranges because this is weekly. And you, we try to time the payments to when they would fall based on the week, so when rent's paid, for instance, when payroll's paid. If you're looking at a monthly, it's going to be different because the month is going to capture those expenses, but it's not going to necessarily capture the precision of a week-to-week budget. So there is a bit of a difference there from an apples to – or comparison purposes.
3: Okay, but overall, uh, you're only there's only three days' difference between a budget that shows uh, revenues and expenses for May – ONE THROUGH 28 VERSUS A BUDGET THAT SHOWS REVENUES EXPENSES FOR MAY 1 THROUGH MAY 31.
8: IT JUST DEPENDS ON WHEN THE PAYMENTS FALL WITHIN THE WEEKS, MR. PACK.
3: OKAY, BUT IF YOU LOOK AT THE PROJECTIONS THAT YOU'VE GOT HERE, ON THE FIRST WEEK OF MAY YOU'RE PROJECTING ABOUT A $590,000 LOSS. THE SECOND WEEK, uh, $94,000 LOSS, SO profit that NETS OUT TO ABOUT 500. PROFIT, and YES. Uh, week three, you've got a five hundred eighty-two thousand dollar loss, and week four, a forty-four thousand uh, dollar loss. So that's, that's that nets out to roughly five forty. So that's a million forty in total um, that you are projecting to lose from May one through May twenty eighth in your initial budget, right?
8: If you were to compare just those weeks with the full month of May, then yes, that math is accurate. But what you're missing is additional expenses and the timing of those payments in the week-to-week budget versus the monthly budget.
3: Okay, you haven't prepared, you haven't prepared a, a week-to-week uh, budget for um, the, the use of the DIP loan proceeds, right? I mean, uh, other than you have your Exhibit 2 doesn't reflect a week-to-week budget
8: that is correct the exhibit two is just a comparison again it's a for different purposes it's a comparison of over the pendency of the case how much will we essentially need or lose uh, operating the park versus not operating the park so it's a it's five months of activities versus week-to-week so it's it's like I said it's, it's not you can't directly compare them because this week-to-week budget that's up on the up on the screen is is as precise as we can make it in terms of when payments are actually made, the month monthly budget was prepared first based on what's going to be incurred during that month, and then those specific payments within the month on a cash basis are then moved to the week that they are likely to be paid. So there are some timing differences. It's not a direct comparison. It's not intended for that purpose.
3: Okay, I mean, because the way that I looked at it is you initially projected eight million dollars in losses um, if you back out the one million dollars at one million forty. Um, that you had projected for May, you'd be left with about $6,960,000 in losses, which would still be significantly greater um, than what you're now projecting. But what I'm hearing you say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that's true, but there's a reason for it.
8: The numbers, the losses are different. They're different periods of time, and they are different timing. So the answer is yes. It's... Based on the comparison that you did, I can see where you're getting the difference, but the difference is explainable because of the precision of the week-to-week budget versus the monthly budget.
3: Okay. And I, I know that the deadline for the debtor to file monthly operating reports hasn't come due yet, but the debtor has not filed any of its monthly operating reports, correct? Correct. And those would tell us what the debtor's actual revenues and expenses were, right? On a
8: cash basis, yes.
3: But at least on the record that we have in front of us right now, because there aren't any monthly operating reports, there really isn't any disclosure uh, to the creditors at large as to how the debtors actual performance stacks up to your projections of how the debtor would perform. Is that fair?
8: To my knowledge, we've not filed anything with the court that shows budget to actual performance because it hasn't been required yet.
3: Okay and none of the loan proceeds that the debtor is going to take from UMB's dip financing are going to be used to add any improvements to the park, right?
8: Uh, I guess it depends on how you define improvements, but we're not planning on building anything, if that's what you mean.
3: Okay, so the loan isn't necessarily going to enhance the value of the park, it's just going to keep the value of the park from deteriorating, is that correct? I disagree with that. And why is
8: that? Well, because it is going to enhance the value because it's going to continue it as a going concern. Uh, Continuing activity at the park, uh, having a reason for people to come to the park to pay for their tournament and their practices and and sponsorships. That is a a real value uh, to the dip loan is keeping it operating so that it can be sold as an operating park as opposed to a basically just
3: a dead facility. Okay, but the debtor was operating on the day it filed its bankruptcy petition right correct and the debtor is still operating it is as of today yes okay so there's there's nothing about the dip loan that's going to change the value of the park from day one of the bankruptcy and make it greater um than than it was on day one is that
8: well i mean I, i i guess i still disagree with your premise at the end of the day i mean advances have been made under the dip loan those advances have been used to pay operating expenses of the park and fund losses at the park so that it can continue to operate. So there has been a very tangible value associated with the advances that have already been made on an interim basis under the dip facility that has enhanced the value of the park in my estimation, because it's now a park that is can be marketed and is being marketed on a weekly basis to buyers who can see the activity, who can see the contracts being performed, who can talk to the employees about how they operate the park and then they can make a decision what they want to pay for it uh, when they decide to make an offer
3: okay so i i understand the concept that by uh, allowing the park to remain open that maintains the going concern value of the park um, and i understand you believe the park is more valuable as a going concern than if it's mothballed, but you can't actually quantify put into numbers the impact that keeping the park open will have on the value of the property can you
8: It can't be precisely quantified at this time because of the ongoing marketing process.
3: Okay. And also you couldn't say with any certainty what the property will ultimately sell for, correct?
8: It, it, it will be sold for what someone wants to pay for it. And at this point, we're in the middle of that process and not all the offers are in and, and I don't know what it will ultimately sell for at this, at this point right now.
3: Okay. Um, I have some uh, questions about your, uh, your mothball projection, so if we can go back to debtors exhibit number two. And let's go uh, down to the next page. So this is pretty small. I wonder, uh, Ms. Nassarov, can you uh, enlarge it? And I'm primarily interested about the, uh, in the right side. well actually that's not going to work because then you can't see what the expense categories are so let's go go back as far left as you can that's good let's stop there um so you're projecting um that if the debtor is mothballed um it's still going to spend ninety thousand dollars a month on uh electricity is that right yes yes okay And if the debtor is operating, it's going to spend $120,000 a month in electric fees. Yes, I
8: believe there's a 25% savings by mothballing it. You still have to air condition the park to some degree. Like It doesn't have to be at 72, but it it needs to be air conditioned to the point where there isn't deterioration because of the hot summers here in Arizona. And you're giving tours of the park as well uh, to prospective buyers.
3: Okay, you also have a line item for capital leases, macro lease, and IFS. As I understand it, um, that's for certain sports equipment that's leased to Legacy Cares. Is that accurate?
8: Partly. It's, it's for, um, IFS provides uh, a lease that relates to essentially the billboards and signage, electronic billboards and signage at the park. It's a, quite an extensive infrastructure of electronic signs and message boards. Uh, and then macro lease provides fitness equipment uh, for the park uh,
3: in the performance center, primarily. Okay, and you're projecting that it's gonna cost Two hundred and forty thousand or so more to make payments on those leases if the debtor is mothballed than if it's continued in operation.
8: Yeah. So, so the, the three hundred and five thousand that you see in the current dip budget that was uh, when the dip budget was prepared. That was an estimate of what we felt you know we could negotiate a deal with with IFS and with with Mac lease. And so that number of three hundred and five thousand is comprised of two numbers: two hundred fifty thousand to IFS, which they've agreed to. And we uh, have paid, and uh, per month, and then macro lease of fifty-five thousand. That's how you get to the three hundred and five thousand. So both those numbers are compromised numbers based on uh, what we thought that you know was a fair number to provide to them as basically as adequate protection. The amounts that are in the mothball are their full contractual amounts that are due. Under the assumption that if there was no reason for them to continue to essentially cooperate with us, because Um, They didn't see the park operating and didn't know what the prospects of the park being sold were and what whether a buyer would Necessarily be interested in assuming those leases or not under their current terms that they would demand full payment under their contracts
3: Okay, those contracts aren't secured by any lien on the park are they?
8: Well, they have whatever contractual rights they have within those contracts to their equipment is is my understanding
3: Okay, so they could take the equipment back if it wasn't paid for because it's their equipment, but they don't have a lien that they could assert against the real estate, either the fee or the debtor's leasehold interest. Correct?
8: Not to my knowledge. Uh, they have what they have in their contract.
3: And a new buyer, somebody who comes in and buys this park, presumably is going to have to pay its make its own lease payments, right? Yes. Okay, and it can either choose to uh, lease from macro lease and IFS, or it can choose to lease from somebody else, right?
8: They can. Obviously, there would be ramifications in terms of that lease rejection and a claim in the bankruptcy case.
3: Okay, so the 542000 that that you're projecting the debtor would accrue on these leases, that would be um, essentially an administrative claim in this bankruptcy case, right?
8: It, it could be, yes.
3: But not a secured claim.
8: I guess it, it, maybe not secured in a sense of priority over the bondholders and mechanics lien holders potentially, but certainly secured as to their equipment.
3: Okay. Uh, let me go down to the, uh, the last line item that you have in, in this projection. Let's see. Keep going. Right there. So I'm, I want to look at under where it says Legacy Cares Inc. Expenses, you've got a line item for uh, professional fees, right? Yes. Okay. And uh, it looks like you're projecting um, $1.9 million in professional fees if the debtor remains open, right? Correct. And I think you have the same amount listed if we can just scroll to the end if the debtor is mothballed.
8: I believe that's right.
3: Okay. But just with the, as with the leaseholders, those administrative uh, claims aren't secured by any lien against the debtor's real property, are they?
4: Your Honor, we object to this line of questioning. It's calling for legal conclusions.
3: Well, he's a fact witness. He's familiar with the debtor's finances. Um, I think he is qualified to say, as a matter of fact, uh, whether he's aware of any liens against the debtor's real property in favor of the debtor's professionals.
1: With respect, that wasn't the question that was asked. Well, I Restate the question,
3: please. Okay. To your knowledge, do any of the debtors' professionals have liens against the debtors' real estate?
4: Same objection.
3: Overruled.
8: I don't know about liens, per se. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but there is a carve-out, I know, in the agreement. Um, how that affects us, uh, that's certainly for the court to decide. But... Um, but there's not a lien filed, if you will.
3: Okay. So those two would be treated as an administrative claim, but not a professional claim. Is that correct?
8: Not a professional claim?
3: I'm sorry, not a, uh, not a secured claim.
8: I, I don't know how the court would view those claims necessarily and what the professionals would, would, what their position would be relative to the priority of their claims. The numbers are the same, uh, given my assessment that the work would essentially be very similar under other scenario to get this case to the end.
3: Okay, let me move on to a different subject. Um, As I understood the questions that Mr. Taylor was asking you, he was really trying to get at, you couldn't get financing on any better terms than UMB has offered. Is that your testimony?
8: Yes, and we couldn't get financing period.
3: (laughs) Okay, Um, but Isn't it true that UMB, the proposed lender, is in kind of a unique position in this case because it has, by far, the largest claim in this bankruptcy estate, right?
8: They are in a unique position to protect their position. They advance more than $10 million pre-petition out of their own money to protect their position under a very similar circumstance from an operating perspective.
3: Okay, and if I did the the math right, um, just very roughly, their claim at this point is somewhere in the neighborhood of over $300 million, right? Yes. So wouldn't it be fair to say that UMB already has the biggest stake in what the property ultimately sells for?
8: They certainly have a big stake, whether it's secured or unsecured and the portions you know that are determined to be secured and un- unsecured,
3: yes. I mean, by absolute dollars, they are the largest creditor. Okay. and. If it is correct that UMB is a first priority lien holder, they'll be entitled to 100% of the net sale proceeds, less whatever they agreed to carve out, right?
4: Your Honor, are we object to this line of questioning? Again, it calls for speculation, calls for legal conclusions. He,
3: he knows what the terms of the dip loan are, um, and I think he's testified to his expertise and he knows um, how liens work.
1: Are, are you asking the question of whether, if this dip financing is approved, uh, the entire nine million plus interest is going to get paid under any scenario that where the sale is above nine million? Uh, yes. Okay, that's pretty self-evident, isn't it? <laughs>
3: yeah, m- maybe I'm, I misunderstood the, the court's questioning. What I'm really getting at is, is this. Um, of all the people that are going to be paid from the sale of this property, UMB is going to have the largest share, right?
4: Again, same objection, Judge. We're, we're, He's asking the witness questions about a sale process that hasn't even been proposed yet. I don't think it's appropriate for the witness to speculate as to who may or may not get paid on
1: the sale process. Please answer the question. I'm not sure where we're going here, though. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Pack. could
8: you
3: just repeat it? Yeah. When when the property is sold, UMB is going to get the largest uh, portion of the net sale proceeds, correct?
4: Same objection. Oh. Cool.
8: I think it depends. Uh, obviously, it depends on what happens in this case, depends on ultimately how the court determines you know, where their lien is, uh, what, um, what priority their lien is, whether it's challenged by unsecured creditors or mechanics lien holders. There's a lot of unknowns there. Uh, like I said, I'm comfortable saying they have the biggest dollar claim, whether it's secured or unsecured and what priority is yet to be determined.
3: Okay, so wouldn't it be fair then to say that UMB has an incentive to ensure that the property sells for as much as possible, whether it funds as dip loan or not.
4: Jackson calls
8: for speculation. I think it's pretty clear to me that UMB, based on their pre-petition and post-petition offering of credit is pretty convinced that this property is worth a heck of a lot more for everyone if the financing is provided and the park operates as a going concern. So yes, they are incented to keep this park operating um, and advancing money in that regard, so that it doesn't shut down, which would reduce the value in their estimation and in mine, if that answers your question.
3: It does. So that incentive for UMB is there to fund this loan, whether they get a uh, uh, super priority lien or not. Isn't that true?
4: Your Honor, this witness has not been tendered by UMB. He is not a UMB employee and he is not uh, uh, competent to testify as to UMB's intentions in this matter. We object to this entire line of questioning.
2: Mr. I'm just to just add mine, that is, that is asking for speculation, Your Honor. All right,
1: objection to sustained
3: Okay, you don't represent UMB, do you, Mr. Bierman? No. You don't work for them? No. Nope. So, if I, and I think that the court just made this point for me, but if I were to ask you whether UMB would be willing to advance funds without a priming lien, you would be speculating. In fact, wouldn't you? I'm sure they would not advance funds without a priming lien. Okay, but you can't say that for certain because you are not UMB and you do not represent them. Correct?
8: That is true. I
3: cannot speak for them. Nothing further.
1: Can you redirect.
2: Nothing from us, Mr.
1: Riggs, did you want to question the witness?
4: Not
1: at time, Judge. Thank you. Okay, I'm call your next witness then. I'm presuming that, that we're really only talking about uh, Mr. Pack's client and the debtor. Uh, if there's somebody else that uh, uh, wants a shot at one of the witnesses, please let me know now. Your
2: Honor, I'd call uh, Mr. Doug Moss to the stand.
0: Do you solemnly swear that the testimony you're about to give in this proceeding is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help you God?
2: could you please state your name for the record?
9: Sure, Doug Moss.
2: And uh, what is your position with the debtor of Legacy Cares?
9: Uh, President of Legacy Cares. Do
2: you have any other positions with the debtor? No. Are you on the board of directors of the debtor? Yes. Uh, Could you briefly summarize for the court uh, your employment background?
9: Um, I've been in the sports and entertainment business for about 40 years starting uh, in the mid 80s in uh, Madison Square Garden uh, where moved on there to the Buffalo Sabres, where I was president and CEO for a few years, commissioner of the International Hockey League. Uh, then with Disney Sports, at uh, the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim, and was president of the Phoenix Coyotes for about seven and a half years. So my, my background is in professional sports and, and entertainment.
2: All right, regarding your positions on the board and, and as president, when did you take on those roles with Legacy uh,
9: uh February of 2020.
2: And uh, were you involved with the construction of Legacy Park? Yes. Can you Please tell the court, how were you involved in the construction of that? I,
9: I was involved in uh, reviewing pay applications, invoices, uh, creating uh, requisitions to be processed to UMB Bank to pay vendors, contractors, et cetera. Uh,
2: now... What assets specifically does the debtor own in regards to the park?
9: Uh, the ground lease and the improvements, building structures uh, on the on the premises.
2: As president of Legacy Cares, do you have an opinion as to what the minimum value of the leasehold and improvements are? Yes. What is that opinion?
9: I think it, at a minimum it's $50 million.
2: Why do you think the leasehold and improvements are worth at least $50 million?
9: Well, from the... Objection.
3: Your Honor, I'm objecting to the extent he's going to testify concerning any of those documents that were submitted to the court, uh, which, again, haven't been produced to us and which we can't cross-examine here.
1: I haven't heard anything that suggests the foundation of his uh, opinion is based on that.
2: Okay. the question I just asked him, Your Honor. Again, Mr. Moss, why do you believe that the park is worth at least fifty million dollars?
9: Um, because of the the general cost of construction, constructing the park, of the quantity and the quality of the facilities and the assets at the park as well, um, the attendance uh, in 2022 and 2023, and the amount of events that are there, and the potential of what a a new owner could potentially bring to the to the uh, to the park in way of a uh, Operating at a more effective and efficient level.
2: Now, do you have an opinion as to the specific market value of the improvements and uh, and, and and leasehold interest uh, No. Why is that? Why don't you have a, a, an opinion as to the specific value of those? Uh,
9: a value of a property, any properties, could be could differ on the uh, on the uh, company or that would potentially buy it. Um, different. You know, depending on their their assets, their company vision, their goals and objectives, the value could change company by company.
2: Uh, do you have an example of, of that type of situation from your own work past?
9: Yes. When when I was at the Garden, uh, we were owned by Viacom for a short period of time, and Viacom put us up for sale. Uh, and uh, the ultimate buyer was uh, eventually it was eventually sold to Cablevision. Which made a lot of sense, and because Cablevision had a uh, held it in a higher value because it owned hardware in its cable systems, that really made sense for them to acquire the software, the content of Madison Square Garden with Knicks, Rangers, and Yankees content. So in that way, it was much more advantageous, and I think more appealing, and had a higher value than some of the other potential buyers.
2: Now, do you recall, Mr. Moss, that that? Um, you testified at the 341 meeting last week in this case? Yes. Okay. Do you recall that during that meeting, the attorney for wholesale floors, Mr. Pack, asking you this question, and I'm going to quote it What is your opinion of the value of the property of Legacy Cares owns, including the value of the leasehold interest and improvements? Do you recall that question from Mr. Pack? Yes. Uh, do you recall what your answer was? Uh, yes. What was your answer? Uh, I don't know. What was your understanding? Of what Mr. Pack was asking you about in that question,
9: basically, I took it as what would what is the sale price, what is the sale price going to be? Trying to project as to an opinion as to what it's going to go for and the value. That's how I took it.
2: And 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 why did you say you didn't know what that ultimate sale price would be?
9: Because I don't.
2: Let me change the focus here, Mr. Moss. I want to talk about. When construction began on the property, if we can do that, okay. Um, again, when did you become involved in the construction of, of Legacy Park?
9: Um, just just after the groundbreaking.
2: Well, you said though that you were president back in February of 2020. Is that correct? That's correct. So you were actually involved in the planning and development of the park somewhat prior to. September of 2020. Yes. Okay. Um, when was the first work done on the project? Well, let me put, let me rephrase that. What would have been the first work done on the property in constructing the project?
9: Uh, was was some demo and clearing of the property to hold the groundbreaking ceremony.
2: So, do you recall when that first work was done on the property?
9: It was uh, approximately sometime in early September prior to September the 14th.
2: And, and what's the significance of the September 14th date, Mr. Moss?
9: And that was the day of the groundbreaking ceremony.
2: Was there any work done on the property prior to September 2020?
9: Not to my knowledge.
2: Who, do you recall, did the work in preparation for the groundbreaking ceremony?
9: Uh, Rommel Construction.
2: What debtors exhibit three, Mr. Moss, on the screen in front of you is what's been marked as Debtors Exhibit 3. Can you please take a look at that document? Are you familiar with it? I am. Okay. What, what is that document we're looking at?
9: It's a Project Fund Requisition Certificate that, that um, I created.
2: And, and, and what was the purpose of this this Project Fund Requisition Certificate?
9: Uh, well, we had a process on how to how to how to pay vendors and uh, contractors for work being done and um, it would go through the process of the manager, the manager's uh, program manager reviewing him and signing off on it, then going to an independent construction monitor, and then who recommended whether to pay or not pay the uh, the invoice and this is the one for Rummel construction for the work they did at the park to clear the ground for uh, the groundbreaking ceremony
2: okay and that's that's a document that that you signed and dated october 22nd 2020 is that right that is correct okay and, and what's attached to that document mr moss
9: it's a it's an invoice from rumco
2: okay and what does this invoice reflect uh, well, well, first of all, what's, what's, what's the date range on that invoice, Mr. Monson? Uh, date
9: range is 9-1-2020 to 10-20-2020.
2: Okay. So this appears to reflect work that was done by Rumco during that date range. Is that correct? That's correct. All right. And is this the, reflect the work that was done for the groundbreaking ceremony? Yes. Okay. Clear exhibit six. Mr. Moss, I've pulled up for you here what's been marked as um, Wholesale Floors Exhibit 6. Do you recognize that document? Yes. What is it?
9: It's the pay application for Waltz Construction, uh, pay application number one.
2: Who is Waltz Construction?
9: Waltz Construction was the original general contractor on the Legacy Park project.
2: Uh, and, And... Okay, so they were the original contractors is that correct? That is correct. Um, and what is the uh what's the date period covered by this pay application?
9: Um, it is nine one twenty twenty to ten thirty one twenty twenty.
2: So that reflects work that was done between those dates, is that your understanding? Yes it is. Why don't we go forward there to um, I believe it's the what the fifth page of this? a couple more. That stop. Stop right there. All right. This appears to be uh, page twelve of that document. Do you see that, Mr. Moss? Yes, I do. What is what is that? What is that document in front it, of you? It's
9: a uh, proposal for work to be performed from uh, Rummel Construction.
2: Okay. So this is this is Rummel Rummel Construction. What we were talking about before. Yes, sir. All right. And and what is the date of this document?
9: Uh, September eleventh, twenty twenty.
2: Okay. And, and does this document say that it's a proposal of work to be performed? Is that correct? Yes, it does. And, and what does it reflect of the work to be performed?
9: As it says right on there the groundbreaking ceremony.
2: I have no further questions at this time, Your Honor.
3: Mr. Moss, you are aware that Wholesale Floors filed a claim in state court in which it asserted that its lien has priority over UMB Bank's lien. Yes. Okay. And that case was recently removed to this court, but as of today, no court has made any determination as to whether the mechanics lien holders have priority over UMB's deed of trust or not. Isn't that true? I believe so. Okay, and I believe you said in your declaration that the mechanics lien holders' claims total somewhere in the neighborhood of $37 million. Is that accurate?
9: Yes, it is. Okay,
3: so if UMB gets a priming loan for $9 million, that allows it to jump uh, ahead in first priority over everybody else, then even assuming the mechanics lien holders do have a first priority lien, they're only gonna get paid if the property sells for something more than forty six million dollars plus whatever interest has accrued on UMD's loan, right?
9: I mean you're telling me that or you're asking me that? I'm asking. Um I'm not sure. I don't I don't know that for a fact.
3: Okay. Um if we assume that the mechanics lien holders have a second priority behind that, that first round of uh, financing provided by the, the UMB bonds. Um, they're gonna be behind a, uh, a loan with a, a balance of $266 million, is that correct?
9: Um, I, think the, I think that's the correct amount of the loan, but whether they're behind or in front, or I, I don't know.
3: Okay. okay. Um, But if they were behind that $266 million, then in order for them to recover anything from the sale of the property, um, the the property would have to sell for the $9 million in new funding plus the $266 million secured by UMB's first deed of trust, right?
9: I mean, I'm not a bankruptcy lawyer. I don't know.
3: Okay, but I mean, you... you can do math I mean it's I
9: I could do math but you're telling me how the priorities are I'm not aware I mean I don't know bankruptcy law
3: okay fair enough Um, you also don't know what the property will sell for right that is correct and when I asked you um, at the 341 meeting what is your opinion of the value of the property is it now your testimony that you thought I was asking you what is the property going to sell for yes but when Mr. Taylor asked you, what's your opinion of the value of the property, then you could say confidently it's at least $50
2: million.
9: Well, that's not the question.
2: Objection. Yeah. That mischaracterizes my question. Rephrase the question, please. Is it now your
3: testimony that your opinion of the value of the property is at least $50 million? The,
9: that's, is it now my opinion? Would you please repeat that question? I'm sorry.
3: Is it your opinion that the value of the property is at least $50 million? Yes. But when I asked you at the 341 meeting, what's your opinion of the value of the property, you told me, I don't know. That's correct. Okay. And you're not a licensed appraiser, correct? I am not. And you're not a licensed commercial real estate broker. That is true. Um. And you said that your opinion of value was based in part on the amount of money that went into building it, right? Partially. Okay. And we know that that amount was somewhere around $300 million, right?
9: Uh, No. It was about $200 million of construction. They're not including soft costs.
3: Okay. So do you believe the property is worth at least $200 million?
9: Um, I don't believe it's worth to, uh, at least doing it, but I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, it could be. It may not be. I don't know.
3: So you don't know that the cost of constructing the property is necessarily um, related to what a buyer might ultimately uh, pay for it, do you?
9: Well, I think in my answer I said it was the cost of construction because of the amenities, the quantity and the quality of the amenities that were paid for by the construction budget.
3: Okay. So it was the cost and the quality of the improvements.
9: That is, that's what I said. Yes. Okay.
3: Um, and aside from the cost of construction and, and your opinion of the construction quality, um, and aside from any of the offers that were submitted that haven't been disclosed, um, do you have anything else to base your opinion of value on?
9: Um, on the attendance of, of the amount of people that have come to the park, the amount of events that are booked and how long they're booked for. Um, those are all contributing factors
3: okay Um, I wanna shift back to talking about the the issue of of lean priorities Um, and you told mr. Taylor that um, as far as you know uh, no work was done on the property until the groundbreaking ceremony in September of 2020 is that correct that is correct Um, and when I asked you at the 341 meeting whether You were the person who had the most knowledge of when construction began on the property. You told me that you were not. Isn't that true?
9: If I recall the question, I think you asked who else would be uh, qualified to offer the opinion on that. You didn't say if they were better than me or that would have better knowledge. I think you asked who else would have knowledge. I may be wrong in that, but I believe that was it. That was the question.
3: Okay, well, let's just play it back to be certain. Can you play uh, the clip? It's uh, Miller one.
2: Moss one?
3: Moss one, my, my apologies. To <laughs> recollection, to your knowledge,
5: not just your recollection, to your knowledge, was any physical construction work performed at the complex prior to the groundbreaking ceremony? The, to my knowledge, absolutely not. Uh, is there anyone who would have better information than you about that? Again, you could talk to Legacy Sports uh, as the developer of the property. And who would be the best person who would have the knowledge of whether or not physical construction work occurred prior to the groundbreaking ceremony at Legacy Sports? I think either Randy or Chad Miller.
3: Okay, and I apologize. That, that wasn't... My question, that was uh, another attorney's question. I I don't remember at the moment who it was. Um, Let me move on uh, and and ask you about um, uh, some of our efforts to try and ascertain uh, when the first work was done. You're aware that uh, we had served discovery requests on legacy cares uh, in relation to the DIP financing motion, correct? Yes. Okay, and uh, let me just pull up uh, those discover requests. It's uh, uh, WF four. So if you can go to page six and go down a little bit further, okay. So, for example, I just want to give an example of some of the things that we had asked. Um, one was identify the first date on which labor was commenced or materials were commenced to be furnished to the property in conjunction with the development or construction of improvements to the property. Is it your understanding that debtors' position
2: was they are not going to respond to that question before today's hearing? Objection, Your Honor. That's he, He's a lay witness. This is regarding discovery that we haven't responded to yet. And this court was well aware the time for doing so hasn't even arrived
3: he knows what their position was um, it's he's a representative of the debtor and he knows whether they agreed to respond to that uh, prior to today's hearing or not please, a little, please answer the question
9: uh, I don't know we haven't discussed it
3: okay um, and let me scroll down to the next page where we had asked for some documents a little too far. So, for example, we had asked for uh, contracts between Legacy Cares um, and third parties, um, all pay applications and all payments made by Legacy Cares to anyone concerning the development or construction of improvements to the property, including the date of the payment. Um, If I were to ask you, Is it the debtor's position that they would not respond to those requests prior to today's hearing? Would your answer be the same as as my previous question?
2: Objection, I don't even know what that question means.
3: Well, okay. Let let me rephrase that then. Um, Is it the debtor's position um, that they would not respond to these requests for documents prior to today's hearing?
9: Never heard that from from my counsel at all. No. The answer is no.
1: OK, um. Mr. Peck, we're almost at five o'clock. Um, those sitting in the benches might want to go over time, but I can be pretty sure that Ms. Bryant and uh, Ms. Bilvino don't want to either. Um, but what what I see here is now basically your offer to to uh, try, if you will, the lean priority issue. And I'm not going to resolve that today. I, I think I, I made that pretty clear before. Um, I've I've got two things I need to decide today. Did they shop this adequately? And what's the adequate protection situation? And this line of inquiry is not going to either one of those issues.
3: That's fine. I mean, Your Honor, my point really was that there's at least a question as to what the lean priorities are and that they have not been resolved yet. Um, So in light of that- I I can
1: stipulate to that, can't we? I'm sorry? We can stipulate that that's a controversy that hasn't been resolved yet. Uh, then then that's fine and, and if that's the case and I have no further questions
3: from
2: Mr. Moss.
1: Okay. Mr. Moss, you can step down unless Mr. <laughs> Mr. Taylor's got something more for you.
2: Uh, no, Your Honor, thank you.
1: Mr. Taylor, is there anybody else you're going to be calling here?
2: No, no further witnesses for us, Your Okay, Mr.
1: Pack. We arrest as well, we have no
2: witnesses.
6: Okay.
1: All right. Is there anybody else that would like to make any comments uh, before I make my ruling here?
6: I may, Your Honor. Uh, I, just, I don't know the point, but I, from the committee's perspective, the court is exactly right. There are two factual issues before the court. First is whether the DIP terms have been adequately shopped, the second is whether there is adequate protection for anybody claiming to be. A secured creditor here. Uh, we heard uncontroverted testimony from these witnesses today on both of those issues. There is no countervailing indication of anything indicating that the answer isn't yes to both of those. The the uh, the the adequate protection has been demonstrated by Mr. Uh, Mr. Moss's testimony that he believes that the property is worth at least fifty million dollars. If that is true then the math that was done in front of the court, the court can do it itself, if that is true, then by all means, even if Mr. Pack's position turns out to be correct, which the court is not discussing today and not uh, not deciding today, but even if he were correct that all of the lien holders have some sort of priority above UMB's lien, even assuming that to be true, a minimum value of this property of $50 million would adequately protect them so that is that means that they their interests are adequately protected even if they have them second is that there is uncontroverted testimony from mr bierman that this that this debtor in possession financing was adequately shopped and despite all of the objection to his testimony it was clear and uncontroverted that that is true as well so from the committee's perspective this has been a useful exercise uh to to establish the proof of uh the proof of uh, the, the burden of proof that the debtor has on approving the debtor and possession financing, and the committee respectfully urges the court to approve it. Thank you.
1: I do have one question. I want to make sure I understand this. Uh, and maybe somebody can bring up what I think is identified as debtor's exhibit two and go to the bottom line here. So, what I'm looking at are two two numbers here. Let me see if I've got the right line here. I was gonna compare the nine million that uh, this spreadsheet shows as a loss if we mothballed the property versus the $6 Six million, and I'm not seeing the six million dollar number now. If it's operational, I can see that there, but now I'm looking at debtors' exhibit two in the exhibits that were sent to me today, and I'm not seeing that exact same six million dollar number. So let me disregard what was emailed to my office today and see if we can just look at the bottom line in this. So let's scroll all the way down, if you would, please. Sure. The debt financing comes in all the way to the bottom, please. Okay, now I'm not seeing that $6 million loss if there is uh, ongoing operations with dip financing. I think it's on the
4: first. Yeah, I've got a you, it would be helpful.
1: Uh, I'd like everybody to see this, but. Uh,
2: Your Honor, just a bit of explanation. That what you were just seeing at the very end of that exhibit right is not a comparison. That's That is the. DIP budget, right?
1: So what, what page is the comparison? I believe
2: that's on page five of the... Uh, page
1: page five, five of the exhibit. Page five no. of the PDF? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay, there we go. All right, so when I questioned Mr. Bierman about this, he said that if we mothball this property, we're going to have a $9.9 million loss. And if we do the DIP financing... Uh, there will be a $6.2 million loss, essentially. But my question to him was, yeah, but what about the $9 million that comes in? And he said something to the effect, well, that, that's factored in there. But then in subsequent questioning, I got the impression that no, in fact, when you get the dip financing and you run the operation, you experience a $6.2 million loss as a, compared to 9.9. However, now you owe nine million dollars on top of what you owed before you started, right?
8: Would you like me to answer that, Your Honor? Yes, Mr. So Berman. Just, you're, you're just, still on the roll, of course. Okay, thank you. And just to clarify, so this is this is June to October. The original right. dip budget, that the nine million, is based on is May to October. So it's an additional. Yeah, I got that. Couple, okay, so that's why nine. It's not showing as a nine million dollar loss in this analysis because of that. So, so what this reflects is that. If you operate it as a going concern you lose six point two million. Right. That six point two million is funded by the nine million dollar loan. Right. Okay. So
1: you're in fact not going to have a big hole of six point two. You're actually gonna pay for that with your nine million. Be absolutely, Your Honor. But now you owe the nine million. Correct. And you've got just short of three million in cash that's uh, still should be around or well, still no, have availability.
8: Remember May. Remember May, we have to okay. we had to fund all the expenses of May too. So the answer is no. There won't be any money left around. So
1: this, this is really my question, then. If, if uh, what you're really telling me is you need to compare 9.9 to 6.2, and the difference is 3.7. Yes, Okay. Sir. You're 3.7 to the better if you just keep this thing operational. Yes, Your Honor. Except for the fact now you have a $9 million debt. $9 million so don't you de- need to take 9 million minus the 3.6 improvement because isn't that net-net a 54
9: negative I I
8: guess I guess the way I look at it if you shut the park down you're still gonna have to fund these expenses someone's gonna have to pay that or that's gonna be a claim in the case that has to be paid one way or another so you're either resolving it by paying the nine using the nine million dollars to resolve it or you're resolving it as far as additional claims that need to be paid out of the case in terms of the the loss on a mothball scenario
1: I hear what you're saying but I don't think you're answering my question okay because what I see happening here is you're comparing nine point nine to 6.2 and you're 3.7 to the better if you just keep this thing open yes but because you now have a nine million dollar debt that you incurred to get to that 6.2 um, uh, loss don't you have to take the nine million minus the 3.7 that is to the better so that net net the keeping the operation open is actually nine million minus 3.7 or 5.3 negative and so net net isn't the keeping the doors open going to produce a negative of 5.4 or 5.5 or maybe it's 5.3
8: i guess in my view it's not going to create a negative by keeping the doors open you're going to fund you're going to have to fund less to preserve the value of the park if you keep it operating well, if you don't keep it operating, you're going to essentially have to fund more to pay those expenses of the mothball.
1: Well, but who's going to fund it?
8: Well, it's going to be
1: true. a bigger claim as an administrative claim in the bankruptcy. That is true. Right? It is, yeah. if, it's not,
8: yes. if it's not paid, it's not paid.
1: UMB right. may not pay for it. They might, but they, Mr. Pack is trying to persuade me that uh, they're going to volunteer to pay for it because they can't afford not to.
8: Yes, it, they would have to be paid by some other source.
1: So the way I look at this as a net-net, if there's really a 5.3 negative by keeping the doors open and and getting this uh, um, actual financing, um, you have to compare that to what the loss is going to be in the value of the property if you shut it down. I, I
8: could see that being a relevant analysis, yes.
1: Okay, and you, your testimony to me was to the effect of the magnitude of the loss you're going to have in the value of this property. You didn't use the word catastrophic, but that was the impression you gave me. It's going to be dramatic, and is it fair to say it's going to be far in excess of 5.3 if that is really the differential between keeping it open and, and uh, mothballing it?
8: In my opinion, Your Honor, yes, it is. It's going to be significantly more than that.
1: Okay. In fairness, Mr. Pack, feel free to cross-examine him on that point.
3: Well, I, I don't have any cross examination cross exam questions for for that. I might have, in fairness, objected to the the question as being uh, calling for speculation, but I suspect you're not going to overrule yourself. <laughs>
1: I actually have before when Mr. Carmel did that one time too. Okay. Well, thank you very much for that. So let's uh, let's get to the finish line here. First of all, I made it clear. Crystal clear. I hope that I am not resolving at all today the question of who has priority whether uh, The testimony that I heard today is enough to persuade me that the ground didn't break until uh, After September 1 and therefore there's no chance the material men liens are ever going to go ahead of the bank I have no idea. We've got another day for that and it's probably not going to be for some time. Uh, I guess what is clear, uh, at least for Mr. Berman's, de- or Berman's declaration, uh, and th- this is what he says at paragraph 24, the debtor's assets are severely underwater. He goes on to say that while the debtor has not appraised these assets, both the debtor and UMB recognize that the debt owed to UMB on its pre loans is several multiples of the combined value of the assets, plus we're losing a million dollars a month. Uh, so at least the debtor and UMB come to this court saying, uh, if you just look at the UMB debt, this is underwater. Um, and if the UMB lien is underwater and is in first position, then it certainly looks to me as if the material men are out of the money in that scenario. But the other scenario that uh, uh, I'm sure I'm going to hear about someday is, no, 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 there's a break in priority and our... Was it $38 million is the max uh, uh, of material and claims that Mr. Moss testified to?
2: I believe it's $37 million on a face okay. amount
1: basis, Your Honor. Okay, $37 million face amount. Denner thinks it's going to actually be less than that. Uh, but if it is in first position ahead of UMB, uh, then I really need to think about by putting nine ahead of 37, uh, what am I doing to the uh, the equity cushion or to the um adequate protection position that uh that the material men liens would be entitled to in that scenario um again another issue for another day as to what the value of ultimately this property is going to be i completely understand that that's going to be left to the marketplace and uh, my hope is that sometime soon we're, we're starting to see what the market is going to say i understand that we're not talking about who's actually in first and who's in second at this point i'm not resolving that and nothing that i say today should be construed to suggest Uh, that the material men are winners or losers in that fight. All I'm here to decide is uh, what 364D tells me to decide uh, in a debt financing request. And I'll address the first one, and that is that the debtor in possession has to prove to me by a preponderance uh, that is unable to obtain uh, such credit otherwise. And Mr. Bierman testified that Not only was there an investment banker that was out shopping for money um, uh, before, I guess October or even before then of of 2022, uh, and that they were unsuccessful in doing so, uh, he himself went to three, uh, I guess I would call them unconventional lenders and two conventional lenders, and nobody was prepared to come forward, and everybody said that at a minimum, even if they were willing to, and they're not willing to, they would want a priming position to do that lending. So that really was uh, the point at which uh, the negotiations begin with UMB, Um, and the deal is the deal that UMB has agreed to here. Uh, I'm persuaded that some of the terms uh, that UMB has uh, are perhaps better than than market with no exit fee, um, and uh, no debt service during the, uh, the the time of this loan uh, until it matures um, whether it's a great deal in the marketplace, whether it's uh, uh, a loan that really ought to get two percent and uh, as a fee and another twelve percent on interest um, uh, I guess I would say the market has spoken uh, as uh, while I don't think that the debtor has an obligation to Scoured the entire market, they have to make a good faith effort. I think they've done so um, and they've demonstrated to me that they have been unable to obtain credit uh, other than what we have on the table now with UMB. So I think that first prong has been satisfied and uh, I haven't really heard any meaningful suggestion that uh, they hadn't. So then the, the real controversy is more about the adequate protection piece uh, and uh, uh, what I have heard here today as uncontroverted evidence from Mr. Moss, and I think uh, uh, being the principal of the debtor or the, the least person who's uh, been called forth uh, by the debtor to give the debtor's opinion here, um, he can't tell me what this property's worth. I get that, and he's uh, resisted uh, doing so, and the debtor has resisted doing so in, um, in discovery disputes here today, uh, or even before today. But what he did tell me is He's, uh, he's been in the sports world for a long time in a lot of different capacities, and that uh, based on what he's seen both in the dirt here, uh, what, what has come out of the ground and what operations are, that um, uh, in effect he can envision this property going for less than $50 million. And so whatever the material millions are, they're no, they're no bigger than thirty-seven million, uh, and nine million ahead of that would still leave an equity cushion uh, if the material men are successful in, in persuading the court that uh, they, in fact, um, are, are ahead of the UMB position. So I think that uh, under that scenario, uh, the, the debtor has carried its burden of proving to me uh, by a preponderance of the evidence that, uh, that the material men positions, if, in fact, they are ahead of UMB, something I haven't decided, uh, are still going to be and, and are adequately protected. The reason I was asking the question about what do we have uh, net-net if we continue the operations versus uh, mothballing the operation. And I see this as really you're going to have an additional $9 million of debt on top of a $6 million loss, but that $6 million loss is going to be funded uh, by the $9 million, But you're still net-net down as compared to mothballing by $5.3 million. And I'm persuaded by the testimony of Mr. Beerman and Mr. Moss that if you shutter this thing, you're going to have a much, much more significant loss than that $5.3 million. I'm persuaded that uh, this property uh, going dark, uh, while maybe not catastrophic, is going to significantly affect the value of the property. Um, Could it bring it below even the $50 million number that uh, Mr. Moss came to me with today? I don't know. But uh, I'm persuaded that, uh, that this place needs to stay open, uh, even though it's uh, at a million burn uh, a month right now. So with uh, that then, Mr. Taylor, I'm going to ask you to circulate this form of order that you've sent to me today. Uh, and I want comments uh, from the U.S. Trustee's Office and anybody else in the courtroom uh, who comes to you and say, says, please give me a, a copy. Um, because I, I want to sign this as soon as possible, but I want everybody to have a chance to actually see what the bells and whistles are here. Okay.
2: Just on that score, your honor, it, is it is it acceptable to court that if I lodge the order, I will have that's my representation that everybody has been consulted on that because getting people to sign off on it might be a little cumbersome.
1: Understood, and I think that's a fair point. Uh, first of all, can you get this out to everybody even yet today?
2: <coughs> uh, I believe it has been circulated to all counsel for everybody who filed an objection to our dead motion, Your Honor.
1: Okay, then can I have everybody here give Mr. Taylor their comments to the order by the close of business tomorrow? Does anybody have a problem with getting that done?
0: No, Your Honor. The U.S. Trustee has no problem.
1: Okay then mr taylor uh you're going to incorporate whatever comments you can or are willing to incorporate and uh you're going to lodge it with me i presume on thursday yes your honor okay so please when you do lodge that order uh, i'll take that as uh, the representation that uh everybody who's anybody here has seen it has had an opportunity to look at it perhaps has gotten to you and this is what uh, uh, the debtor and UMB are willing to uh, to live with, and then submit it to the court. Contact Ms. Bryant when it comes in, if you would please. Okay. Okay. So that that puts us at Thursday morning. Uh, that's the bar convention day. Uh, but I'll be in Tucson, but can still get this thing signed. Bar um,
2: convention is this Thursday. I'm sorry. Bar convention is this Thursday.
4: Yeah,
1: Thursday. Well, the bankruptcy piece is Friday, but I'm I'm going down there on Thursday. Um, while we're together, Mr. Taylor, is there anything else that we need to be talking oh, no, about? No, Your Honor, I don't think so. Maybe you didn't hear me. Mr. Taylor, is there anything else that oh, we need to be talking about here?
3: I don't believe so, Your Honor. Thank you. Mr. Pack? No, uh, I appreciate the, the, the court's time and the time of the court staff, especially stay, staying after 5 o'clock today.
4: No, Your Honor,
1: thank you. All right, very good. We're adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.